Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is Barbell Medicine, where we try to bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. All right, this week we've got a Q&A from San Antonio. We were just there last weekend for a Barbell Medicine seminar, and this is what happened. Let's get into it. We're back in San Antonio for the second time. Uh, we've curated questions again. We're gonna be answering them here at the Barbell Medicine Seminar. Thank you guys for coming out. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, so the first question is, do you anticipate that resistance training will ever grow into a reasonable, popular intervention to treat mental health diagnoses? If so, which mental health diagnoses do you expect it to be most commonly or effectively treated by resistance training? So my take on this is that we're kind of already getting there. Uh, exercise is recommended for both mood disorder, like the major mood disorders of depression and anxiety, unless anxiety is the cause, or exercise is the cause of the anxiety, which I've, I've had some experience with that, not personally, but professionally. And I don't see that it's a major cause of anxiety. Uh, so exercise is recommended. Resistance training has not been explicitly recommended by any of the organizational groups that I'm aware of. Uh, that being said, in the mainstream, I think that it's being recommended, like exercise. And with the explosion of CrossFit, it's still really big. I mean, you could make a case that people with depression, given the prevalence of the disease, people with anxiety, given the prevalence of the disease and the you know, exposure of CrossFit, that that's likely to go hand in hand. But I, I don't know if we're ever going to see that people prescribing, like medical professionals prescribing resistance training as a adjunctive therapy for depression, anxiety, you know, or and certainly psychiatric, psychotic, you know, disorders. <laughs> sure. Like, hey, schizophrenia, just do three sets of just, five. Just train, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, there were actually two meta-analyses that came out, I think, in JAMA in the past year, one for depression and one for anxiety with respect to resistance training, showing some evidence for benefit. However, I will say that I think that from a medical prescription standpoint, it's probably going to stay limited to what would be considered a quote-unquote adjunctive therapy, um, something to go along with other types of treatments, which I think is fine. When you look at uh, guidelines for treating, for example, mild episodes of well, major depressive episodes that are of mild severity, uh, most of those tend to get better on their own, almost regardless of what we do. And typically they recommend either observation or if the person wants to pursue therapy, they can pursue therapy. They don't even tend to recommend medications for those patients. If we can get them to exercise, that'd be awesome. The more moderate, more severe uh, kind of categories of, of, of depressive episodes, there's no reason to pick just one thing when you're approaching it, right? That's again, one of those reductionist approaches to things that don't tend to work very well. You have to attack it from multiple angles. There's always gonna be tons of, obviously in this setting in particular, psychosocial factors to address. Maybe, getting, maybe if you're able to get them to exercise, that'd be awesome. Maybe they, they probably need some additional therapy. They may actually benefit from some medications on top of that. So I think that we have plenty of evidence at this point to prescribe it, to recommend it in these contexts, but definitely not to think of it as like a panacea for treating mental illness for sure. And the other thing that's difficult is that it's difficult to, to have like a, a, a true placebo for exercise, right? Yeah, right? It's usually exercise versus a non-exercise control group. And so kind of have to be careful with how confident your conclusions are about what exercise is or isn't doing for patients in this situation. Uh, remember I said any intervention that we can do to an individual with respect to any kind of subjective complaint uh, is going to have a component of a placebo effect and exercise is certainly included in that. So we may be seeing placebo type benefits from exercise because um, it's difficult to do a placebo squat, right? So hard to say. So I think it should be in there, mild, uh, mild uh, in particular, moderate, severe, you're going to need multi kind of modal therapy to, to handle those things. So that's good. Thanks. Yeah. I think I know a few things. Well, you drink and you know things. Yes. All right. All right. Number uh, two. 
Have you seen growing acceptance of the biopsychosocial model among the lay public? What about among medical professionals? Let's start there. Uh, I mean, with all, in our like little echo chamber. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I've seen a huge overwhelming like acceptance of the biopsychosocial model. Uh, that being said, that's not really, a, I mean, on the one hand, that, that's a small win just because it's like, we didn't know that there was another model before this and you know, they're taking the biopsychosocial model and making it their own. It's cool, that's a win. As far as medical professionals, most medical professionals have been exposed to this, and then when you remind them about it and then explain it a little further, they go, ah, and then they're like, crap, I gotta go back and do some, do some homework. Uh, at least that's been my, most of the experience that we've had, or at least I've had with other medical providers, because nobody's rejecting the biopsychosocial model like outright saying, nope, that's dumb. They just forgot about it, or when they had their first pass through that material, they weren't ready for it. That was- Like I mean, us. Yes. So that's been my experience with that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's easy for us to get overly confident with how many people are sweeping these ideas up. But again, that's in our little bubble of people who are like ravenously taking this stuff up. In the real world, particularly you know, in the pain rehab world among people who are trained and operate and make money off of a traditional biomedical model, yeah, they're not taking it up quite so readily, right? Because their entire life's work, their training, their practice, depends on them operating under a different model. And additionally, let's say their interventions that they're doing, for example, we talked about some of the surgeries that don't work that well compared to a sham surgery, right? So those orthopedic surgeons, for example, who insist that they're continuing to perform these surgeries, the patients are coming back to their clinic saying they're feeling better, yeah, right? And that's all that matters to them. Not the fact that, you know, hey, if you did the sham surgery, like you pretended to do it, you get the same outcome. And the same thing with respect to all the other approaches to therapy that we that we talked about whether it be you know manipulation manipulative therapy or you know various types of massage therapy all these other kind of things like the people are saying they feel better and that's their justification for doing this i don't care how it works as long as it works sometimes without realizing that the narrative that you deliver to the patient about why it's working and what it's doing can have profound consequences the conditioning effects that you could be having on these individuals uh, unnecessarily conditioning them to interventions that they don't actually need things like that so that's the segment of the population that's really hard to get through to with these models um, fortunately our audience is hopefully taking it up and helping us spread it further um, and yeah so i think that's the lay public and medical professionals thing the last part of this question was, given the evidence for this model, why is pain still used as a vital sign? Uh, people are moving away. I mean, there's like lots of papers coming out and opinion like pieces and like guidelines like yes. re rebutting that. Yeah, so the idea of pain as a vital sign is what I mentioned in my lecture where you reassess and you ask the patient how bad's their pain every time you assess their vital signs like their blood pressure and things like that. And in the hospital setting, where sometimes we check vital signs very frequently in some patients who are particularly ill, that means you're asking them how bad is their pain uh, as frequently as once every hour, for example, which is crazy. Um, so this is a huge complex topic and, and healthcare professionals in general don't like the, uh, that, that particular approach. It's more of a regulatory thing that has a long history in terms of how it came to be. For people who are interested in that topic, um, there was a recent podcast from NPR, it's called Invisibilia, is the title of the, the, it's like the, whatever, it's like Barbell Medicine, that's the name of the podcast. But the title of the episode was The Fifth Vital Sign, and they go into the history of pain as the fifth vital sign, and they talk about where it came from. The latter half of the podcast, there's some stuff that we didn't love about the way they were talking about pain, but the history of pain as the fifth vital sign, they get into details uh, talking about there. So I'd recommend people go there. Regarding aging populations, how important is it to train in multiple planes? Like air, 
airplanes? <laughs> they talk about like like sagittal sagittal so, plane, uh, transverse plane. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, if it is important, <laughs> are there other populations excluding sport-specific training goals that training in multiple planes would be necessary? Well, so I think my answer to this is if you don't have specific training outcomes that are very important to like a sporting performance, right? Uh, then I, I think that you can make a case for getting better in as many different contexts as possible. So strength is the production of force in a specific defined context. 1RM is one example of strength or force production in a specific context. Running a marathon is also force production, just different context. Uh, I don't know that I would be explicitly programming like, okay, so today is frontal plane day, today is sagittal plane day. <laughs> uh, that being said, I wouldn't necessarily restrict somebody from training exercises in different planes. I just also necessarily wouldn't select for it yeah. specifically. Yeah, I guess I think about this in terms of also in terms of context and outcomes. So if I have somebody who's just training for health, right? If I wanted to confidently say you need to train in the transverse plane and in the sagittal plane for this health outcome, I would prefer to have some evidence to support something like that. Yeah. And I do not have that. Well, you or anybody else. Nobody else has that either, uh, including functional patterns guy. Right. Who so, talks about this. Right. So, so that's faith-based recommendations, yeah. not evidence-based recommendations. Right. So if it's respect to health, I don't have evidence to say that. If it's with respect to performance, then it's going to be task-specific, right? So if your sport requires you to perform some task in a particular plane, then yeah, we're going to train the task that you're going to be tested in anyway. So. I just think it's a, this is basically boils down to a specificity question. And if it's just older adults training for health, then the answer is there's no need for specificity, so it doesn't really matter, and you can pick whatever of those exercises you want or don't. Today is coronal plane day. I don't even know what that would be. <laughs> training I just in the axial that, plane. Yes. Okay. How close are we to genetic screenings that provide enough information for everyone to get one? And would we risk noceboing a patient? Oh, Austin. Would we risk noceboing a, a patient or starting down a road of interventions that may not be necessary? Yeesh. Uh, I, I know you're so, yeah, just do it. <laughs> you do it, and then I might add yeah. some nuance at the end. This was actually the topic that I did one of our uh, research review articles on with respect to genetic screening. Uh, and so I talked a little bit about screening in general this weekend, over-testing in general this weekend, over-diagnosis. Uh, as well when we were talking about testosterone, for example. And so genetic screenings that would provide enough information for everyone to get one. And we get these questions a lot of times in the context of people saying, I just want to know things. And the answer to that is you probably don't no, you just don't. want to know things. Yeah. And you don't want to know these things for various reasons. Um, in the context of the research article that I reviewed, they actually did genetic screenings on everybody for two particular genes, one related to exercise performance, aerobic performance, and one related to uh, like kind of satiety and related to obesity. And what they found was that regardless of the actual genetic result, if they told the individual that they got the bad form or the good form, they're physiology appeared to be more consistent with that genetic variation. So the people who, even if they had the good gene for this aerobic parameter, if they were told that they had the negative gene, their performance was worse. The people who were told that they had the gene relating to uh, satiety, that you have a, this profound post-meal response where you get very full after a meal, even if they didn't have that, but they were told they did, they manifested a more profound physiologic response 
of satiety after eating a meal. It's a genetic so, placebo. Yes, it's genetic nocebo or placebo, whichever way you want to look at it, depending on the test and what you tell the patient is going on. So there are a lot of things that you don't just want to know, in particular certain disease states that if they're, if they're uh, particularly bad conditions that there's nothing you can do about, the, you know, why do you want to know now? So a common example of this is patients who have a family history of Huntington's disease is, is a common one. And knowing about that is terrible for individuals. And they have a very high rate of suicide in that population because there's something that they know is coming and there's nothing they can do about it and things like that. So uh, inappropriate screening is a huge issue. There, I mean, I can't think of a gene that I would think is, can you think of any genes that we should universally be screening for? Uh, I certainly at the can't. risk of, at the risk of saying anything politically charged. No, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't think of any. There are certainly certain subpopulations that merit genetic screening for certain conditions. So yeah, the situations where I might do this most often is, you know, where I have somebody coming in and they've had multiple blood clots at an early age and they have this crazy family history of blood clots. I might be doing certain genetic tests on them with respect to their blood clotting tendencies, for example. But you're not screening. There's but already not, some clinical but There's a reason for me to do the screening. That's, that's, the, that's yeah. the issue here is there's a reason to pursue it. Same as when we talked about testosterone. People who feel well, performing well, have no issues, no reason to check. You don't want to know. Yep. If there's symptoms that would give you a reason to check, then you can check and you can follow that through kind of appropriately. But yeah, screening is a topic that gets us kind of fired up <laughs> in uh, general. Yeah. And, I mean, how close are we though? Well, hey, there are people willing to take your money. They'll, you can test your gut health at home. You can test your genetic. You can swab something, different orifices, and find all sorts of things if you just mail it into the right P.O. box. But the first question you should ask is, are these tests validated? Like, is the test that you're submitting, has it been validated against, you know, in, in studies, in literature, so that you can actually use the results? Like, do the results actually, like, match up? meaningful, yeah. Yeah, and then if you have the results that have been validated, then what? So, like, let's say that you had a genetic test that was validated, but you can't do anything with them. All you're doing is potentially hurting yourself. Here's the example. Leah's here. Leah kept saying that I'm not like a particularly gifted athlete. And I go, and this is after she'd been to the world championships for powerlifting, right? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, this is this, you know, one of the silliest things you've ever said. And so then there was a, either 23 and me or like something like that. And yeah, and she has like both copies of like the ACTN3 gene, which is like, you're gonna be a power lifter or like, you know, high, you know, high force production athlete. And she's like, guess it's not, I'm not just an average athlete. <laughs> and it's like, well, look, there are people out there with, you know, copies of this gene who do not perform at the level you do, but, have, but having that information doesn't make you any better or worse. It just, it's like, it's a twud. Time wasted on, wasted on useless detail. So, I don't know. I yeah. wouldn't do it. For the most part, I don't want to know things. Yeah. I, well, and apparently 20% of adult American males are with you. They don't even have primary care doctors. They don't want to know anything. Things that actually could save their life. They want to know what their gut health is, but they yeah. don't want to get their lipid screening done. Yeah. Yeah. We'll don't get, let I, that be you. Like, I, think, I think we'll get to a question like that in a, in a little bit. All yeah. right. Neat. Yeah. I basically made PeriRx out of necessity. I combined all of these supplements that I was recommending into one supplement. It's really easy to use. It's one scoop before, one scoop after.
the extent that you want to get better performance, recover faster, or improve your, the results you're getting out of your training, this would be the supplement I would recommend. All right. Uh, is there any data to suggest that over the career of powerlifting, which presumably would include injuries, an elderly lifter may develop any worse condition than an elderly person who has not lifted in a meaningful way? Uh, I mean, I guess within the, just the context of this question, I do expect powerlifters to have higher incidences of shoulder, low back, and knee injury compared to, you know, people who aren't active. Like just as far as, oh, I went to the doctor and I, you know, like doctors is related to that or like time missed from training. That being said, the other person is not missing anything. They're just hurting. And the, the one study that's standing out in my mind right now is a study from the early 90s that suggested that power lifters who had been retired, it, they looked at their, an MRI of their uh, backs and x-rays of their back and, then, uh, and, and asked for back pain. So on average, their MRIs and x-rays like, looked a little worse you know, than the general population, but they had lower incidences of back pain than the general population. And so somebody at home is like, see, I knew that powerlifting was gonna hurt your back. And it's like, well, no, dude, like, look, there's a huge variation in changes in your back, your, you know, in backs throughout life. I wouldn't chalk that up to just powerlifting. If anything, it's gonna raise your pain tolerance threshold so you don't seek, you know, care for every minor inconvenience. And the bigger risk is of not being active. Yep. That's the bigger risk. Yeah, that's the other side of this question that makes me kind of think about it. Because uh, the question is, um, is there any reason that the lifter would be in a worse condition than the person who didn't lift at all? And that kind of runs contrary to like everything we presented this whole weekend. Yeah. <laughs> right? About like yeah, why, you, have to, why you should train. You don't have to compete. Like yeah. it's just powerlifting. So. And you don't even have to powerlift. Yeah. You can just resistance train, which can mean many other things, right? Yep. We don't particularly care which specific lifts you do Shh, if you don't have a particular goal, right? They're going to find out. What are they going to find out? That we don't care. That we don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do care about you. We just don't care if you low bar back squat. If you just want to front squat because that makes you happy or you just want to leg press, you can do that too. It's all good. Yeah. Unless you're going to a powerlifting meet. They won't let you do that there. Well. <laughs> You'll also likely perform poorly. Well, yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see. For those that are not medical professionals or coaches, how would you recommend advertising your willingness to help others in your peer group? That's a great question. Um, I think it depends on what you're trying to help them with. So, I mean, the first thing, when somebody asks me something where I'm not an expert in, the first thing I do is tell them that I am not an expert. And if it's something that makes me feel uncomfortable, I refer them to somebody who is an expert or can direct them to the right person. Because I don't want to take responsibility for that. But that being said, you guys are all, have all now been brainwashed, barbell medicine ideology, and go out there and be zealots, start fights on the internet, which I'm pumped about. Um, yeah, please tag us. No, the thing. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> the, I like that there's a laugh track. It makes you feel good. The, thi the thing is, uh, you're likely to be asked rather than having to advertise. Yes. If you actually are perceived as the expert, as the person who knows, as the person who's informed or has a higher skill set than others, you'll likely be asked rather than have to put out a sign up and, t and tell folks. Uh, so if you want to be that person in your peer group yet aren't currently, I would suggest just continue to train. Or if you happen to be like friends with a bunch of like 
super freak athletes, get new friends. Stop hanging out with the people who make you feel bad about who don't your fitness. Need you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I imagine if you like went to a, a gym, like a CrossFit gym and all, everybody's games athlete you know, level and like you're the least fit person yeah. and you're like, oh man. <laughs> so you have to like train one day at a Globo gym to have. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't think that advertising uh, your services or willingness to help others is probably the best way to go. I would just uh, kind of earn that through your own training and results and stuff like that. And it really, it will happen. If you, assuming you train in a public setting, right? You can't train in your garage gym and expect people to come into your garage and, and start asking you for advice. Yeah, that'd be weird. But if you're in a public setting, that's just going to happen eventually. You, so yeah, I mean, remember you were training at uh, ODU. So yeah, I never really advertised my services. No, but. people are just like, you're strong, teach me. Yeah. Yeah, and now they have like a whole powerlifting club. They have like tons of people who are lifting heavy weights and it's pretty awesome. But back when I was first starting, I was literally the only person in that gym who could squat four plates. Yeah. And that earned me that attention and that's where I got my coaching chops going, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, so right or wrong, just kind of leading by example tends to be, at least that's been, that's been my experience. And then I, I think that also it organically generates interest versus like, hey, if you guys need any help, like losing weight. And then you look at somebody and they're like, why are you looking at me? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, what I'm just saying. I'd say the other side to this is, <laughs> is if you're, if you're trying to go out and advertise these things and you're not in a situation where people are approaching you already for advice, maybe you're not actually ready to be helping people with this stuff. So if you just, you know, if you're a young, healthy male and you just squatted like 215 pounds for the first time and you're wanting to like, hey, I'm going to advertise my services, right? Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. It, it doesn't mean that you don't know things or like, and you haven't been edu educated. It's just that because your practical experience has not yet uh, gone on for a long enough time that you don't have perspective to apply this, the knowledge that you have. Yeah. So you just need a little bit more. It doesn't mean you need to like wait till you squat 600 before you start coaching people. Right. Just give it a little more time. And, and once I, I find the, that tipping point, it's a really good thing you said, like once people start asking you for your advice, that's probably the time that either you should consider doing that, yeah. right? Or, or, or if you're untrained, like yeah. you don't know what you're doing, then becoming trained so that you can fulfill that need in your yeah. group. The analogous situation to that situation I just described where somebody just squatted 200 pounds for the first time is, and, and, and trying to coach others is like, if you're just like reading a chapter ahead in a textbook and teaching people, about that topic, right? You're not like, you're technically like a little bit ahead, but you're not actually ready to be teaching people the thing. So that's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's sufficiently covered. All right. In your behavior change lecture, you talked about rewarding behavior for positive outcomes. Like if you achieve X, you get to do Y. What are your favorite examples of this you've used for clients? Oh, a lot of times um, it'll be, well, I do it both in the resistance training sort of uh, sphere and then also uh, nutritionally, but so resistance training wise, it's like somebody's like, I don't wanna do all my back offsets, right? Like I don't wanna do all this volume, stupid. And I'm like, look, if you PR this set, then you can just not do a bunch of other sets. <laughs> Leah, like that's why she actually likes, that's why she actually likes training with me. Cause I'm like, just if you PR, then you can like not do this. <laughs> okay, so that, that happens, happens sometimes. Um, from a uh, like nutrition standpoint, it's basically if somebody, uh, I have them usually set the goals. So a lot of people have been like, hey, I, if I lose this much weight, I'm going to take this trip. And I'm like, all right, well, don't schedule the trip until you hit this benchmark. 
that's one thing um, that, that I like to do because usually it's somewhere tropical and they're like, I have to be in a swimsuit. And so there's so there's way more like social psychosocial factors like going on than just, oh yeah, well he said, if I hit this weight goal, I get to take a trip. It's like, I'm not in control here, right? Like, you know, other, other factors uh, are at work. Um, also, if people like lose X amount of weight, sometimes I'll uh, excuse them from ex like their conditioning. Um, that works too, just people don't. Temporarily. Yeah, not like for life, like, yep, you're good, just no more. Uh, and then the final thing that I, I used to use, or well, not used to use, but uh, when I had a more, I would call them cold clients. It's like people who didn't really know much about what we did, and so they were like, when are my cheat meals? And I'm like, if you guys notice, a distinct lack of like discussion of cheat meals this entire weekend. I, I don't really like that term. Um, but what I would do is, I'm like, look, if you were able to be compliant with your nutrition, these, uh, you know, for X amount of time, right? And the only thing that was keeping you compliant was the promise of this like cheat meal. Okay, I'm like, all right, well, I'm, I'm winning many battles, right? To win the win the war, I'll give them a little a little taste. And so then what I would do is, I, I here's the rule: you get a cheat meal can't be at home, can't be by yourself, okay, you have to be in public with another person, you get one hour, and you can't bring anything home. Because, because then, then, you know, because if you don't put rules in place, right, many people will try to game this thing. They're like, yeah, dude, I got sweatpants on, pizza's coming, Chinese is coming after that, you know. But if you're, it, the idea is to generate positive eating behaviors, right? And so some, invoking some of the psychosocial pressures here tends to guard against, yeah, I actually did 8,000 calories last night. It was a PR, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I used to use that more frequently when people were really, really hard up on, on uh, cheat meals. I just, people don't ask anymore, so I don't have to, have to do that. That's funny. Yeah. The cheat meal thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm four years out from bariatric surgery. I started powerlifting approximately two years ago, asking for a friend, and counting macros in January. My nutrition coach has increased my calories and weight has maintained. Recently, I started feeling more hungry despite uh, that hormone being cut out with part of my stomach. Is it an actual body's? Is it the actual body's need for more calories or a false sense of hunger uh, from increased physical activity? So. I guess the way I wouldn't think about this as the part of your stomach that produces this hormone has been completely removed. Section of it has, but the remaining part can certainly produce like growing. Yeah, so that can certainly, you know, go go up. Hunger though is like pain. It is an output of the brain. It's not that your stomach or any other particular part of your body or any particular biological or physiological parameter saying you're hungry now. It's an output of the brain. So you know there are biological inputs, psychological inputs, social inputs. So if you are hungry, I would be looking at many different things, uh, especially anything that had changed recently uh, in your sort of psychosocial setting and dietarily as well. I guess as far as what to do about being hungry, that's tough. That's one of, you know, there are, I mean, obviously there are medications that help with hunger suppression. You know, I'm not saying go there initially. We know that higher protein diets, high fiber di higher fiber diets tend to improve satiety. We know that uh, having increased social support uh, tends to improve people's ability to stay compliant to calorie restricted diets. Uh, you know, literally they're anything. 
one thing, one strategy that I've tried to have people do is like when you're hungry, when you're hungry and you're actually trying to engage in the food seeking behavior and you know that it's not, that's not supposed to happen at that time, what you need to do is break the cycle because the cycle is, I feel hungry. I'm going to seek food. I'm eating food. And it's not wrong all of the time, but if, if it is an excess of what you're supposed to be taking in to achieve your stated goal, then I want to break that cycle. So what I'll have people do is, oh, you feel hungry. Okay, what you need to do, put your shoes on, you're gonna go outside, you're gonna go for a brisk walk. It's gonna be 30 minutes, so go 15 minutes out from your house and then walk back, reassess. Right? If you're still hungry, go do something else. Get out of the house. And it's not because I, people can't walk to some place to get food. Right? But what I'm trying to get them to do, to think about, is that if you were actually so hungry that there was a biological need in place, okay, that you would not be able to do other things to avoid eating this food. I'm basically trying to distract you and get you to either forget about or change the perception of the hunger and then uh, break that cycle down. Yeah, I think this question reflects like the implication here about bariatric surgery, taking out part of the stomach, and is this all related to the hormone changing is, again, kind of a reductionist perspective trying to explain all of hunger or, you know, this whole hunger experience with one thing, right? And hunger, like pain, like stress responses, like all the stuff we've talked about this weekend are very complex, multifactorial uh, kind of experiences. And so... Uh, definitely looking at other things. One idea that was posed in the question is, could this be a false sense of hunger from increased physical activity? Not to say that's a false sense of hunger, but hey, yeah, did your training suddenly change and you're doing way more training volume? You're doing way more. <laughs> did you double your conditioning work or you know, did your volume go up to, that, that might help to explain the, you know, the changes in calorie ins and calorie out kind of situation? So. Except for I, I probably wouldn't suggest that reducing physical activity is the solution. No. Ma mainly because I, the, the protective mechanism of the body to not, you know, to not lose fat or to abstain from losing fat is not to, to like, oh, physical activity went right. up, you know, we're, we're going to eat more. That's not necessarily sure. how that's... Yeah. I'm talking about looking for like an explain, a possible yeah, explanation sure, sure, sure. for the situation. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. All, All right. right. Can LDL go too low through treatment with a statin in a person with familial, hypo, ugh, familial hypercholesterolemia? Uh, no. Yeah, there's, this, is a, this is a big topic and can also be, as with most of this stuff, kind of controversial. Um, Say it. But there are lots of, there's, there's lots of discussion about the idea of whether LDL, the, the concentration of low-density lipoprotein, which again is different than cholesterol itself, um, whether there is such thing as too low in that, in the, in that context of treating, treating them down. And there appears to be a continued decrease in risk the lower you go, and this has been shown in more recent trials, including some of the trials of some of the newest medications on the block for treating uh, abnormal blood lipids called PCSK9 inhibitors that I left out of that whole lecture because more eyes glazing over uh, if I went into the details of that. But basically they would take patients who already had pretty low blood cholesterol levels and use those medications to push things even further and, and saw increased uh, further risk reduction with respect to heart attacks and strokes and cardiovascular events. And uh, don't, we don't seem to see uh, a ton of increased rate of adverse events when you push things down. There is still, I don't know if it's perfectly clear, there's still some questions about sort of like cognitive issues, particularly in some populations that may be uniquely sensitive to the effects of statins. Um, 
but with respect to if you're speaking about cardiovascular risk alone, it does not appear that there is a too low with respect to treating these things in high-risk patients. Remember that when we talked about treating this stuff, we treat patients who are at elevated risk who stand to benefit the most. We don't treat patients who are at low risk just because they have an abnormal number on their blood test because they don't stand to benefit that much. Did you say that you treat the whole patient? I w <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I like that you laughed in the middle. Yeah. That was my goal. All right. Uh, if someone is not at risk for sleep apnea given the stop bang test, or you could also use like the Epworth sleepiness scale, anything else, uh, and assuming they follow good sleep hygiene guidelines and do not have any known adverse medical conditions, well, that's, a, that's a big assumption. Uh, what would be the next thing to check for if they still had interrupted and or poor cal uh, quality sleep? Uh, well, you could check for a mood disorder, so any sort of psychiatric condition, you'd check for if it's a male, do they have an enlarged prostate, uh, you would check for drink, uh, like fluid intake habits, like are they getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you check for uh, are they eating very close to bedtime and that's keeping them awake for longer, you could check, I mean, you're assumed for good sleep hygiene, so then the room is fine, like you're making a lot of assumptions here, which are generally not actually being like checked. So for instance, you're assuming good sleep hygiene. Okay, so you're sleeping in a cool, dark, quiet room where there's not a lot of like sound you know, pollution coming in overnight. It's unlikely to be the case if you live in any sort of like major metropolitan area. You're also assuming no adverse medical uh, you know, sort of situation. So the person has no depression of any sort, no anxiety, no adjustment disorder, no nothing. You're like, all right, cool. Because that can very easily cause like problems, falling asleep, staying asleep, early morning awakening, you know, all sorts of stuff. No anxiety. That's, that's a big ask. Sure. Well, I think there, the point of this th that we need to get across with this question is that just because somebody reports poor sleep quality doesn't mean it's sleep apnea. Right? There are lots of other sleep-related nope. disorders that can happen. And there are and, and multiple conditions like all the stuff Jordan mentioned. The only one that you left out would have been alcohol use that I would uh, also yes. add to that list sure. that can influence sleep quality. Um, but outside of that, there's you know, just primary insomnia, restless leg kind of thing, various other quote-unquote parasomnias that can be, uh, can be diagnosed. And so those are things that can be evaluated still with the same sort of sleep study that we typically use to evaluate diagnosed sleep apnea. So uh, I would definitely see your doctor and talk about all those other things that Jordan mentioned, as well as potentially pursuing a sleep study because there are other things besides just sleep apnea. Yep, parasomnias. Oh, yep. Parasomnias. I like that word. Did and you say too. melatonin deficiency? Uh, I did not say that. Ah, all right, good. Uh, during the first day, oh, of this seminar. This is split across here. Yes, I see. During the first day, it was clear that tracking weight, BMI, and waist circumference is a a valuable tool for establishing if you or your client are on track with nutrition goals. These days, we have the ability to track a lot of things related to health and physical performance, like sleep, steps, resting heart rate, calories, weight, blood pressure, reps, tonnage, etc. What data do you think is the most valuable to regularly track for health and performance-related purposes, absent of specific pre-diagnosed issues? Uh, so, That's be a like, question. yeah, it's a great question. I think weight. Uh, waist circumference, uh, I mean, physical activity reported in some manner would be useful. So that can be a combination of steps and like other formalized physical activity like we talked in the programming. Uh, and then some sort of nutritional information I think would be like my baseline. Like if I wanted to know things about a person for, as res with respect to guiding, like managing them, that would be like 
That's what I'd want to know. I don't want to know their rest, like resting heart rate variability. I don't want to know like, uh, what else do we have? Do we have on here? Uh, like what would their blood pressure unless they had an abnormal reading? You know, because if we're assuming no abnormal reading, like I don't want to know your blood sugar, I don't want to know your blood pressure, I don't want to know like what was your pupil dilation like when you first woke up in the morning. Like, <laughs> well, I'm just saying, right? Yeah. Like you well, can theoretically be, measure this stuff. This would be an example of kind of like over testing on an individual level, like you doing it yourself, yeah. right? There are people who are. I find this to be very common since we had a lot of engineers here this weekend when I've consulted with people, like, I'm an engineer, I'm a big data guy, and so I like collecting and tracking all this stuff. And they have like- I've got a 12 lead on have, right now. <laughs> they, they have like a 10 sheet Excel spreadsheet tracking like every blood test they've ever had in their entire life, every anthropomorphic metric, height, weight, blood pressure, uh, heart rate variability, all this stuff. And I'm like, that's not really like, that's no way to live, right? Like. I don't know. There's like well, these biohacking types who are yeah, all into this stuff. But, but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't make the argument that it's not a way to live because that's just like subjective, right? Sure. The point is there's not data supporting that it, t it t gives you any information with what to do yep. with it. So for instance, your heart rate variability, right? This has like reasonable amount of data in endurance sports as far as like what to do about it. Zero data in resistance training for like what to actually, how to manage your resistance training. So. I don't want to know your heart rate variability, so how variable the resting heart rate is when you wake up and different you know, orthostatic measurements. Same thing with like blood pressure, unless you have high blood pressure, in which case I want to sure. know that on an average over a series of days as your doctor to figure out, do we need to change management? We talked about this with sleep uh, in an article I wrote on our website called Placebo Sleep where yeah. basically people were using sleep trackers, they were tracking their sleep, but they were in this, this was in, a, in the context of a particular study where regardless of how they slept, the researchers who said they were tracking their sleep in the morning told them, you slept awesome or you slept terribly. And then they went and they did some cognitive testing, some like little brain teasers or whatever kind of testing on them. The people who were told that they slept poorly did poorly. People who were told they slept great did better regardless of how they actually slept. So this is another con situation where we say, hey, you don't actually want to know. Right? You, you don't want to know if you did bad. You don't yeah. really want to know if you it's, did good. It's just not worth measuring. So if you feel like you're sleeping poorly, then you need to take the same steps to try to improve it. But just people who want to track this stuff for the sake of tracking it, it's not particularly useful. Strategy. I would say the same thing for heart rate variability, because yeah. that's another thing where it's like, oh, I'm going to base my training for the day based on my heart rate variability. I would not do that because you could wake up and you feel fine, and then your device tells you that you have low heart rate variability. And then you're like, oh. You're not recovered. I guess I'm not ready to train today. Better not train. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What are you going to do? Not train? Yeah. Yep, so I, my, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would track the basic stuff like a waist circumference and, and, you know, maintain some form of a training log for most people, right? And your weight. For, from a medical standpoint, there are actually recommendations on what you should and should not be tracking. Yeah. USPTSF. Um, yeah. If, if people want to look, I've actually thought about including it in the books. If you want to um, look for what these recommendations are, there's something called EPSS. Just Google EPSS. It's associated with the US Preventative Services Task Force. They have like a little web app and I have a phone app. Um, and this thing you punch in age, 
male, female, I think it's like, and maybe like sexually active or not, or something like that, right. to it's determine if you need to get STDs tested for standard sexually transmitted infections. But EPSS is their, is their resource, and that'll tell you literally everything that should be monitored at a, for a particular demographic and the strength of evidence to support that recommendation. If it's highly recommended that you get this checked, or if there's insufficient evidence to recommend screening for this kind of thing. And that's how I base my practice with respect to standard screening for, un, for healthy, you know, outpatient type people when we have discussions about things like colonoscopy and HIV screening and prostate screening and all this stuff, that's where a lot of that stuff kind of comes from. So uh, Yeah. So people would accuse us of being like reductionists, like, well, you're not, you're not measuring all these variables. Like, look, man, once the evidence is there, we'll track them. Yeah. Look, I'll make an Excel sheet. Yeah. All right. Just like you. And I'll <laughs> track it. But there, if there's not evidence to support that they do anything, all right, and the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence, but if there's evidence that exists on the actual topic that says, hey, we don't know what to do with this, then I feel even more strongly like, don't waste your time. It's just like, it'd be like tracking your body weight four separate times per day and giving me a readout with four separate like, you know, plots. And like, I only need one, you know, first thing in the morning, after you voided, right? And then do that every day and give me that. I need that. I don't need your 2 p.m. weight. Like, it's not, because it's not adding anything to, to the management sort of thought process. Yep. Okay. Do IV hydration banana bags have any benefits? I mean, if you're not, so, if you <laughs> Well, no. Not even then. Yeah. So, so, so banana bag is basically a bag of of isotonic IV fluid that contains folate, thymine, and magnesium. Uh, and they're more expensive than just giving somebody a bag of IV fluid, thymine, folate, and magnesium by mouth. So I don't typically use them. Uh, and this, the question here is, for example, with recovery after a sporting event like a football game. So he talked about hydration and you talked about salt and things like that during your nutrition lecture uh, or during your hypertension uh, lecture. The only other thing that I would add here is imagine a football player after their game feeling that uh, going and getting an IV rehydration kind of treatment done. Are they likely to report feeling more or less recovered compared to a situation where they finished their game and they drank some fluid and took those probably unnecessary vitamin supplements by mouth? With the IV, Remember our discussion about placebo, things that suggest higher potency. Yeah, you get it. You Oral, get injection, IV, things like that. Suggest higher potency. They're likely to report feeling more recovered after it, right? Again, just like the pain medication, oral or versus IV, even if it's the same thing. So I would expect that to be, that would explain the differences. I don't think that there's really any reason for this sort of situation in, in our context where we actually our context being the strength world, not the hospital world. Where we see this happen is people using IVs to rehydrate versus like uh, after very aggressive weight cuts for, uh, for powerlifting meets or wrestling competitions or whatever other kind of sporting event. But, but yeah, So the, the function of the IV, especially in like, you know, so we typically are taught to use banana bags like in alcoholics, right? Especially, or if suspected alcoholics, you're like, oh, we don't want to have this one random like rare case of Wernicke Korsakoff, like due to thiamine deficiency. But the point, the idea is that they are not unable to drink or would not comply with drinking fluids. So the infusion rate, it's not like you're slamming these people to volume resuscitate them, right? You're not like 
actively pushing in this fluid at for, with force to get them back to normal fluid status. You're just hanging a bag, letting gravity do the work, let it, you know, a couple cc's, get in there every few minutes. If somebody like post weight cut is willing to and like will be awake and has like the goose, the, uh, <laughs> the muscular strength to like swallow, then an IV would just be slower. It's, it's just going to be slower because nobody's sitting there like mashing on the bag Pressure through bag, a large yeah. bore sure. IV, you know. <laughs> All right, moving on. I only do IVs of CBD oil. <laughs> yes. Infusing yes. oil directly into the blood is a great yes. idea. Yes, yes. Oil embolisms are my favorite. With the whey protein, people kept asking us, which protein should I take? What do you recommend? And when we looked into it, we didn't really feel comfortable recommending any protein. So we just made our own. Only got four ingredients, the essential amino acid content, BCAA content, very high. It's exactly what you want out of a whey protein. How does a non-medical professional go about getting a family member, say son to father, oh son, okay, to take him or her seriously enough to make a change in the family member's lifestyle? My father has pancreatic cancer and is on a host of medications that are making it difficult for him to be physically active and maintain a healthy diet, as in bare minimum stuff, eating enough total calories throughout the day to not lose weight, high protein, etc. It's tough, and I don't want to pretend like there's an easy answer because there's not. Uh, I, I'm not a religious person, but the saying is like, you know, man is a prophet in every town but his own. You know, that's, I butchered some, like, religious phrase there, but <laughs> that is a religion, that's where, that's where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, the idea, the idea is that you could be an expert, right? So, like, the, the story I'll say is my dad, right? My dad knows that resistance training can be useful to like living a long, full, complete life, managing his nutrition in ways that I've described intimate to you guys can be effective at you know, extending his life, whatever. And uh, whenever I see him and I ask him, hey, you training, you know, whatever, he goes, nah. I cut the grass though, you know, I was sweating a lot. And I was like, sweating is not associated with long-term <laughs> outcomes. Although I suppose the absence of sweating like, may be problematic. Yes. Sure. And, uh, you know, but he knows I'm an expert. Like, I've, gone, I've done the full thing, right? Like, I even went so far as to go to medical school just to, like, convince my dad, like, I knew what I was talking about. And it still doesn't matter. He's still my biggest fan, but at the same time, you know, it's just he's not, he's not as receptive uh, to that. As far as how to do it, I think the best things you can do are provide resources when, they're, when there's an opportunity to do so. So... Obviously being asked is like a wide open opportunity, like cool, now I get to provide resources. Um, that being said, if there's a question or discussion that you guys are having about a particular thing, if you have resources that like answer a question, he's like, you know, I always wonder how much protein am I supposed to eat? Or like, you know, or what is protein? I don't even really know. It's a learning opportunity, right? And you're like, actually, you know, hey, here's this great thing to read, or here's this great piece of information, or hey, I'd love to, you know, talk to you about it. That would be a great way to do it. On the other hand, if there's no open points for you to kind of like get your foot in the door, 
it's just going to be perceived as aggressive, you know, it's likely to be perceived as like aggressive overstepping of your bounds. And you don't, not only do you not want to do that, that's not the relationship that you likely want to have at this time. So at that point, it's more supportive until you're asked or there's an opportunity, you know, as a per, if a person in this condition is likely getting professional or access to professional services at every level. So there's an oncologist, there's a primary care doctor, there's a nutritionist, there's, you know, all these people that are likely either appointments being scheduled or contact trying to be made. And if you don't have a place to get your foot in the door, then at least managing appointments or making sure that he's not like ignoring the registered dietitian who's trying to make an appointment with them to talk about this stuff would be a, an easy way to be like, hey, I didn't do this, this is for you. You know, you're supposed to do this. Yeah. Uh, I would only add a couple things here. The first part of the question, just kind of in general, how to get your family member to change their behaviors, super difficult. Some people have more success with it with, than others, depending on their relationship with that family member. But the same approach to behavior change that Jordan presented at the beginning of the weekend would apply. Um, just, it just depends on how receptive they are to that. The reason I added, I wanted to add the rest of this question is because it changes things a little bit. The father has pancreatic cancer, he's on a bunch of medications, and there's a whole bunch of complex context to this question, right? And so the ability to undertake behavior change, always, as with all this other stuff, being mediated by biological and psychological and social factors, you know, maybe he's not going to pursue this because he's experiencing some depression, for example, that hasn't been sufficiently, you know, sussed out. That's one example of something. The other is the specific example given is not eating enough total calories throughout the day to not lose weight. That might not be explained by him just not feeling like eating enough calories, right? Cancer as a condition in general tends to promote anorexia or decreases in calorie intake. There's a chronic inflammatory state, elevation in molecules like TNF-alpha and all kinds of other things going around in the blood that actually tend to promote anorexia. In other words, tend to promote decreased calorie intake. So in the same way, when we talk about weight loss, when we talk about your body fighting you with weight loss and ramping up these regulatory mechanisms to make your appetite go up and make you try to regain weight, you're fighting the same, you may be fighting the same kind of uphill battle with him where he has these circulating hormones and molecules going around in this you know, inflammatory environment that's making him have literally no appetite at all and it would be torturous to try to force down additional calories. That's part of a problem of dealing with cancer. <laughs> Torture him to force down oh. the calories. <laughs> Did I say something else? Yeah. No, didn't mean to say something. I'll else. edit that out. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you might be fighting an uphill battle in that context. So uh, just keep that in consideration that it might not be that he's just you know unwilling to engage with this, but the biology you might be fighting against may be just tough. Yep. You know? It is tough. And sometimes we use, although they're not great various certain medications that can increase appetite and things like that but they don't really work all that well sure you're, just, you're looking for opportunity and then if not then you're being supportive as part of his social group yeah yep okay uh let's see what are the doctors take Almost. on orthopedic surgery and its contribution to misinformation res re respecting pain science and what would you say to a medical student considering ortho as a possibility but who takes the bps model of pain seriously did you, uh, were you ortho at all during your medical education? No, I hate surgery. I thought that I was ortho. People thought I was ortho because I Same. lifted weights. Same, every time, every time during, during residence, like 
everywhere I went, they're like, oh, you're the ortho resident? And I was like, ha, family medicine. Um, <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'm here to talk about feelings, not my gains. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my experience has been mixed so far. Um, in general, I think that orthopedic surgeons are very well educated. They are experts in their craft. They know a lot of literature to support their thoughts on things. Full stop. And, and, and that's colored mainly by my interaction with colleagues who are either fresh out of residency or still in residency. And if you ask them about like, you know, knee pain and they're like, yeah, so we do this, 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 and then we look for this, 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 and it's like paper, paper, paper. It's like getting overwhelmed with evidence. I'm like, cool, I like this. You people, like I feel like we're having a, a good discussion. The problem is uh, I think that either people who are, have been further out for longer, it's my experience with them, they do more things out of convention or maybe have not gotten around to revamping how they view things in this biopsychosocial model sort of lens. And so they're still stuck in this biomedical sort of view of things and they don't necessarily recognize that. And that can be very, very harmful. You think about it, somebody who's made it to the orthopedic surgeon, let's say it's for back pain, right? It's an orthopedic surgeon who's gone, done all this education. They're the expert. They've done a spine surgery fellowship, right? So all this education and they make it to the spine surgeon for back pain, right? And they're, so they're like, well, look, this guy's or gal's got to be in a ton of back pain. And, you know, I see this on the imaging and I know that all the patients who have come back to me have shown, you know, impressive results. I have seen that a number of times where there, there's a lot of misinformation going on there. There's a lot of confirmation bias, other cognitive errors, but I can't fault them on that because I understand why it's happening. Okay, so I think that if you want to go ortho, like go ortho, it's going to be fine. Um, and I don't think that this is actually a huge problem, like, pay, like doctor to patient. The bigger problem is commentary on pain at large like in news media outlets, mainstream media, uh, social, social media. understanding of what pain yes. is and what it means. Because it's peer-to-peer -peer learning and then like, uh, you know, oh, I read this article by this ortho, you know, he said that back pain was usually due to like posterior disc compression, secondary to yeah. this other thing. Uh, on the other hand, you'll see an article from an ortho that suggests that on the, the rotator cuff thing, you're like, yeah, well, you might have a rotator cuff tear, but you don't have shoulder pain. So I think it goes both ways. I, I don't think it's actually a huge problem. Again, and my ortho, our ortho, ortho colleagues tend to be very well educated. It is still kind of annoying though when you come across it because you're like, come on, man. <laughs> you know about the biopsychosocial model, right? And they're like, oh, you mean like your feelings? And you're like, <laughs> you're like well, I mean, kind of, but it's more complex than that. Yeah, I think the overwhelming majority of ortho, orthopedists that I've come across or worked with um, are definitely rigid mechanical model as far as their understanding and explanation of pain and surgeons are trained to operate and it's definitely up to their surgical dis their discretion and their clinical decision making if they're going to decide whether or not to offer surgery to somebody right and so if you want to do ortho there are certainly lots of legitimate surgeries that they perform, right? So, you know, it, you know, I certainly did not give the, or did not intend to give any impression that, you know, as a field, they're unnecessary, but we talked about specifically the, the, the types of procedures that have been studied against sham controls and shown little benefit, specifically things like 
you know, degenerative meniscal tears or subacromial decompressions, and I'm sure most of the orthos who are up on the literature would agree with that. Um, but, you know, there's going to be lots of hip fractures that need to be fixed. There's going to be lots of, you know, septic joints that need to be dealt with. There's going to be all kinds of things. So there's going to be a role for you as an orthopedist. And in fact, there's one guy, I don't know if he primarily trained as ortho or as spine, but um, this guy, he wrote a book. Uh, the title of it is Back in Control. Uh, and his name is Dr. Hanscom, H-A-N-S-C-O-M, I think. And he's a spine surgeon. And uh, despite being a spine surgeon throughout his years of practice, wow. he observed a lot of this stuff that, we're, that we talk about. And so he wrote this book. He developed this program that he puts all of his patients through, like they're required to go through this intensive, like psychosocial and physical therapy type program prior to him ever considering talking about surgery with these patients. And so he's performing probably far fewer spinal fusions or something than his neighboring spine surgeon next door who might be just still doing spinal surgeon uh, spinal fusions left and right because that's a super common and not particularly effective procedure for chronic back pain um, and so that's an example of a surgeon who has gone through the training he's he's you know expert status on this stuff and yet he is fully up on this uh, uh, on this model and is putting it into practice with his patients in the real world so i think it can be done um, you're going to have to go through many years of hearing other things and being trained under a different model before you can get out there and do what you want because ortho's five years after medical school. So that's yeah. another almost decade of training that you're going to be going through where you're not going to be in charge of the way things are done necessarily. Plus so spine where you're not, you know. If you're going to go spine, yeah. that's yeah, even further. So, yeah, I mean, I think the ortho world, just like a lot of these rehab fields, are just very, very mechanical in nature. So we're still, we're still trying to push the rock up the hill, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That actually, you know, leads to like a, you know, another interesting point of like what we're trying to do here, right? So Austin made the point that orthopedic surgeons who are up on the literature have similar views to what we have because we all come to like the same conclusion after seeing, you know, similar conclusions after seeing the same data, right? Cause you just read it and you're like, yep, that's, and then it kind of shapes where you go. People who reject the science come to their own conclusions. And our job, our role, our aim in barbell medicine is not to like, we're going to go get them and wrangle them back in here, make them reread all that stuff and change their minds. Our job is, okay, hey, you're up on the literature. We're up on the literature. Maybe we're up on different stuff. You don't know as much as we do necessarily about these certain things. We're going to bring you up to, up to stuff on that. So we're getting the professionals from that aspect. And then the public, we're saying, hey, we're allowing you like insight into this world. We're giving you more information that you can either ask your doctor about or change uh, stuff in your own life based on, and it's evidence-based, whatever. And so we're trying to bring those together. But we're not trying to go save the rogue people or like argue with the rogue people who are ignoring the evidence. I don't mean to point to you guys. You guys are great. Okay. But, the, but what I'm saying is that there are certainly people over there, but we can't save them anyway. Right. That's not because what they'll say is, well, you guys aren't surgeons. You don't know. You've never been a surgeon. Like, well, I mean, I was in a surgery once. So technically I was in fact a surgeon. No, you weren't. I mean, I, I was there. I was mistaken for <laughs> Okay. Last question. Yeah, right. Besides what was covered in the seminar, what misconception about health and fitness would you do away with if you could? About health and fitness. I guess, I think the one that I would do away with would be, have to do with uh, doctors don't know anything. Because I think it's a, dangerous, it's a dangerous idea to put out there, 
right? So if if you are a strength conditioning or health health you know professional, but not a doctor, and you're saying, yeah, well, doctors don't know anything. What you're saying is that don't listen to anything they have to say. Ignore everything. They don't know anything about exercise and nutrition. That means they don't know anything about the recommended screenings that you're supposed to undergo every year or anything about vaccinations. And it's a, it's, it's a slippery slope that you end up going down. Real question is, why are you asking your doctor about exercise? I mean, re really, that's, not, that's below their pay grade. You know, I want them to be recommending physical activity and I want them to refer you to the 2018 physical, physical activity guidelines, which comes with a free handout. So here's what you should do. Okay. I want them to do that as a bare minimum. That would be meeting the minimum requirements of like clinically effective treatment. Okay. I want them to do that, but I don't want them to know as much as I do about training because if they do, that means that they're not as skilled in other areas. Okay. We don't need every doctor to know what we know about training. We want them to know enough to get, you, get somebody started on the right track or refer them to us or refer them to a coach or refer them to a nutritionist. We don't need them to necessarily know all the ins and outs of you know, the ketogenic pathway that you read about in a blog. But suggesting that doctors don't know anything is a dangerous sort of precedent set. It gets people to not engage in regularly uh, getting screened for things that we know reduce rates of diseases, okay, reduce costs associated with those diseases, reduces death associated with certain diseases, and I think it's a dangerous, I think it's a dangerous thing to do. So that's, that'd be the one thing. I don't know if it's necessarily, if that's associated with health and fitness, but it does seem certainly that people involved or tangentially related to the health and fitness field say that over and over again. Well, doctors don't take any nutrition courses or any, any, any exercise courses, and you're like, you're damn right, you're glad they don't. They took a vaccine course instead. <laughs> they took like a biostatistics related course instead. Would you rather them take a course on like how to squat? I mean, I, I, yeah, I want doctors to know this stuff, but I want them also to be able to evaluate you know, things critically more than I want them to be able to teach you how to squat. If you wanna learn how to squat, there's way more coaches than there are doctors. Okay, I'm done ranting. <laughs> so besides what was covered in the seminar, since we talked about a lot of misconception, I'll probably just reinforce a bunch of those further before picking something else. Uh, but other misconceptions about health and fitness I would do away with if I could. I think the biggest one uh, that tends to irritate me the most is the idea that either in health or in the fitness world, or in the lifting world, or really anything related to like human physiology, that you can start from a position of some sort of like a first principle and you can just like use deductive reasoning to figure out how everything works. You know what I mean? Because that, that almost always leads you down the wrong road and things are always more complicated than you think. If you think that you can just like logic your way to a whole system of approach to health or training or f understanding of human physiology, you are going to be hopelessly wrong well, at the end of it. Well, logic people would say that, well, logic is always right. You just made the wrong arguments and the wrong. You started from the wrong premises, Correct. which may well be true. But you know, logic yeah. is only if you start with the right premises. Yeah. But you only know that retrospectively with respect to these things. Yeah. 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 And human physiology, so multifactorial, all this biology, all this psychology, this social stuff, this things that are complicated when we all start interacting with one another and how that changes all of our experience. and 
And so, yeah, the idea that you can just, again, reductionist perspective, you can simplify things down to one little variable and explain the entirety of the human experience with it, or uh, that you can do that and then just kind of like logic your way to the right answer to explain everything. It's just silly uh, in physiology. It may work in other fields where I am by no means an expert, which is fine, but if you're gonna make arguments about how humans work, how humans adapt uh, health and disease, you're, you're gonna be wrong like 100% of the time. So would not recommend. I like that. Hey, thanks, hey. man. Yeah. We did hey. it. Thank you guys for coming out so much. It's been great. Thanks, San Antonio. You guys are All right, so hope everyone enjoyed it. Thanks for watching or listening. Uh, if you could, head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps us out. Also, if you're on YouTube, leave us a comment below. Let us know what you thought, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. When are the jokes going to be different? The answer is not. Just, I've been telling dad jokes since I, you know, since 85, bro. Like. <laughs>